Fernandez, I am the pastor here at Christ the King Reformed Baptist Church, and as we begin uh, to worship the Lord this morning, uh, please turn with me to the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, 
And I'll be reading verses 14 through 15. And as is our custom, we want to be drawn into the worship of God by means of His Word. So let's give attention to the Scriptures as we prepare to worship. Malachi chapter 3, and actually what I'll do is I'll read uh, verses 16 through 18. Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of God. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened And heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Amen. Malachi has been preaching to the people, particularly he has been instructing them about right worship. And here in this section, Malachi in particular has been dealing with the people's discontent at worshiping God. Why should we worship him when the world seems to be blessed? They, they live their lives in content with no agony, no difficulty, and great joy. And we, God's people, suffer greatly. So here as we close this chapter, verse 18, God says that there will come a day when God will make a distinction between those who are His and those who are not. And He says it clearly. Look at verse 18. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. Why a statement like this? Why a statement like this one? Where God makes this distinction among people. There are righteous and there are unrighteous. There are those who have a right standing with God and those who do not have a right standing with God. Uh, Our world, uh, the world that we live in, which is, you know, a politically correct world, uh, hates to make these kinds of distinctions, but the Bible makes them repeatedly and often. And that great distinction has nothing to do in particular with the individual and with what the individual does. That distinction is reserved only for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. And those who trust in the Lord Jesus have abandoned their own righteousness, they've abandoned their own perfection, and they desire to be found in Christ alone. And that desire moves them to worship. They are not like the people in verse 13 who say harsh words against God who have said things like, it is useless to serve God. Those of you who 
uh, come to church and maybe come to church regularly, you've probably heard it from friends and family who don't. Why do you, why do you waste your time? Why do you go there on Sunday and listening, listen to, to preaching and, and sing to God? The Christian desires it. There is a distinction between the Christian and the unbeliever in this. Look at the last half of verse 18. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. The heart and desire of the believer is to serve God. And part of our service to Him is worship to Him. That's why we gather on the Lord's Day. We gather on the Lord's Day not just to quote-unquote hear a sermon. Yes, we want to be edified. We want to be built up by the preaching of His Word. And God promises to bless His Word and to make it a means by which His people are built up in the faith. But our desire is to gather with His people because our heart is to worship Him. So brothers and sisters, in light of this great exhortation, may the distinction be made this very morning. May God make us a people here who serve him, who worship him in spirit and in truth, and who have a great desire to please him in our words, in our works, in our heart, and in our mind. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, and for the clarity of your word. How you, Lord God, make distinctions. You are the one who tells us that there are those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. We don't make up those categories ourselves. You tell us, Lord, that there are those who worship you and those who do not worship you. And we praise you with great humility, knowing that in your Son, we have access to the throne of grace. And now we approach, Lord, with boldness and with humility and worship you in Christ. Amen. Now please stand and sing.
Genesis 43. <laughs> now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to the questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of your choice fruits from the land of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man took his present, took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The, man did, the men did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time, that we are brought in, so that he may assault us, and fall upon us, to make us servants, and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, and spoke with him, at the door of the house, and said, O oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our, opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and he had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom we spoke? Is he still alive? They said, 
Your servant, our father, is well, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother, of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him uh, by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them, uh, to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. Please remain standing as we sing. For our New Testament scripture reading, for the New Testament scripture reading, we're in Mark, Mark 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 20. Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, 
and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he had got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And his teaching, in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the, the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for the outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones shown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. Please remain standing as we sing.
you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and I'll be reading verses 26 through 30. And again, our focus has been on the covenant. We've been thinking about the new covenant, and by way of of concentrating specifically on just generally covenants in the Bible, and then arriving at the blessing or a blessing from the new covenant. So this morning, we, we will do the same. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, uh, through 30. I'll read through 30. Hear the word of God. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This morning, I want to begin to think about a a particular question, and uh, I think it'll take us four weeks, maybe, to think about this question together. It's short. These these are short. So the question is this. Why did God make the new covenant? And why must you be in the new covenant to escape eternal judgment? These two questions go together. Why did God make the new covenant? And why must you be in the new covenant to escape eternal judgment? Of course, as we take the supper together, judgment should be in our minds. Not our judgment in particular, but the judgment of Christ. What we're celebrating is the death of our Savior. And upon the cross, he bore the wrath of God for the people of God. That's what was happening. That might help some of you. I think it's going to go faster now. Uh, Okay. So I want to note three things. First, uh, the condition of, and and here, so we're thinking about covenants generally, and this is a new covenant. That means there must have been an old covenant. That's what it's called. This is the, my blood of the new covenant. So three things. So first, The condition of Adam before he sinned. Second, Adam's sin and the immediate effects of that sin. And third, how God dealt with Adam in his fallen state. And of course, as I I read these, I, I communicate the idea that the Bible communicates, and of course that Jesus communicates in his own word, Adam was a historical person. Adam is not a matter of myth. So, the condition of Adam before he fell. And, of course, we get this from the book of Genesis. You you could turn there if you'd like. But in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7.29 in particular, there Solomon states it with absolute clarity. 
When God made man, he made him a reasonable creature, able to think. And remember, uh, one of the reasons why we know this, of course, is from, from the Bible, is God parades the animals in front of Adam, and Adam names all of them. And Adam is able to reason from seeing all of these animals that there's not one like me. So he was a reasonable creature. And God invested in Adam an original righteousness. Remember, after the uh, six days of creation, God saw everything that he was made, and it was very good, Adam included. Adam was created sinless. He was created righteous. And this perfection enabled him to answer to the end for which he was made, to serve God in true righteousness and holiness. He was made in the very image of God. He had knowledge, he had righteousness, he had holiness, and he was given dominion. He was given rule over the earth and a responsibility, a command he was given. Now, part of this righteousness, of course, was the law of God written upon his heart. Adam knew the difference between right and wrong, just like every person knows the difference between right and wrong. Kids, even little ones, they know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, I've said it before. Many other people have said it. You'd, you'd, uh, you'd, uh, but, but there's a problem, right? Do you have to teach your children to disobey or to obey? You have to teach them to obey. In, in, in part of parenting or grandparenting or aunting and uncling is uh, this responsibility to teach the way of righteousness. And how is it that you know the way of righteousness? We all know. We all know what sin is. How our culture and our society may impact the way we view particular sins or allow them. But we all know what sin is. It's very simple. If, uh, and if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, well, I don't, I don't think that's the case. Well, you know, if, if I were to take your wallet or your purse, you would be greatly offended. Now, each and every one of us knows what sin is. Is, And this is because of the way that God originally made man. With his law, with the works of the law written upon the heart and the mind of man. Man has a conscience. And you could summarize this moral law in this way. Love God and love your neighbor. And this is the way that Adam was created with the ability... To love God and love his neighbor perfectly. If we are, we are honest, we do not love God and love our neighbor as we ought to. We have fallen from this natural condition in Adam. Yet the requirement, perfect obedience is still placed upon us. The sovereign creator of heaven and earth still requires the penalty for disobedience for all the sons of Adam. 
and we, uh, and, and we understand this. And so, um, even today, I think last year was the last time it happened, or the beginning of last year. Uh, the courts in Europe were able to apprehend a man who worked for the SS in the United States, and they sent him back to Europe to be tried as a Nazi. Why? He's not Hitler. But you see, he was, he was as it were, uh, to speak theologically, he was found to be in Hitler. He was, he was one of his own. Therefore, and this, this man, you know, he's reaching his hundreds. You know, they gave him multiple life sentences. We understand this issue of this, the, the connectedness, culpability because of relationship. And because man, Adam and Eve, was created in perfect righteousness and holiness, and because they fell, they disobeyed God. Every descendant of Adam and Eve is born with a sinful nature. Man does not become sinful. He is sinful. The obedience that was required to satisfy God's justice, if we want to be saved, must be given. That obedience must be given to God. Yet the problem is that we can't give it to him. We've already, we're born in trespasses and sins. Not only are we born sinners, but we sin, and we sin every day of our lives, in our words, in our thoughts, and in our deeds. Therefore, we need a Savior. We need someone to deliver us. And that deliverance is found in Christ. The righteousness that we need Active righteousness, which means actually obeying the law of God. I cannot do it. Someone must do it for me. But there is no man who can do it. But the God-man can do it and has done it. Therefore, the righteousness that I need, the active righteousness, the active obedience to God's law that can give me a clean conscience before God, that I can experience forgiveness and communion with the true and living God is found in Christ alone. But that's not sufficient because there's a penalty that must be paid because God is not unjust. God is just. And I'm a sinner born in sin, and I commit rebellious acts. Therefore, punishment must be meted out. Well, we look to the cross, and there we see Christ suffer for the sins of his people. His perfect life is, is counted as mine, and his sacrificial death is counted as my own. That's why the Christian can have a clean conscience before God. Because what was required of me, because of my sinfulness, was paid for by Christ. This is why we need the new covenant. Because the old covenant that God made with Adam was broken. And this is why 
I can't remember the second half of my own question, but I have it here at hand. <laughs> and this is why, and this is why we must be in the second, in the new covenant, to escape the judgment to come, because the blessings of the new covenant are union with Christ, and I receive His righteousness, and His death is applied to me, to me, His righteous death. The judgment that He received becomes mine. And as we take the Lord's Supper, this is what we are celebrating. We are celebrating the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ for me upon the cross. He died for me as a sinner. Therefore, Christians are invited to take the supper. If you are not a believer, um, the Lord's Supper is not intended for you. Not because God hates you and He doesn't want you to drink grape juice with us and eat bread. But because this has a, a particular meaning, when a person takes the supper, as we've discussed in the past, it's a visible act of faith that shows, I believe these truths, I believe that Jesus is my Savior, that his blood was shed for me, that his body was broken for me. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you are invited wholeheartedly to come and partake of the supper. We want you to celebrate the supper with us. If you are a Christian and you've been living in sin, and rebellion against God. Repent now. Turn from it. Confess your sin to God and endeavor after new obedience. If you're sitting here today and you profess to be a Christian and you're living in sin and you refuse to turn from that sin, do not take the supper. Paul says you are drinking judgment upon yourself. So do not take the supper with us this morning. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. And then come and take the supper. So... As we do each Sunday, we'll start with the first row, second row. Come forward and uh, uh, please grab, the, let's, uh, yeah, and grab cup and bread. All right, let's um, pray together, and then we will take the bread together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ. We ask now, Lord, that you would please bless this taking of the bread. And may you use it, Lord, by your spirit to strengthen us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Take the bread with me. And now, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue. We've gotten into the text. The, our, our first week at looking at the text, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and we saw how, the, you know, how love is the greatest gift. Last week, we took a look at love suffering long. And what that means, that love suffers long, that it is patient. This morning, we'll take a look at love is kind. uh, One commentator has suggested that these true attributes of love, it is patient and that it is kind, that patience has to do with the passive response towards others. When they sin against you, when they offend you, particularly, this is in the context of the church, love is, its passive response is patience with the person. You just, you're you're patient with them. The active response, the way that you respond towards those who are not kind is with kindness. You know, the old adage, you kill people with kindness Love, then, is disposed to do good. That is what love is disposed to do. It does good for other people. Not only in word. It's very easy to be kind with your words. It's very hard for those words to be matched with acts of kindness. To be followed up with kindness. But kindness is really godlike. We are acting like children of our Heavenly Father when we are kind, particularly when we are kind to those who are not kind to us. In Romans, as Paul is describing God's kindness, he, he says this in Romans 2.4, he says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness goodness, the kindness of God, his forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Kindness has an effect. It does something in people. And when a person despises kindness, when they respond to kindness with uh, crude looks, with sneers, with acts of unkindness, generally, we think those, we think, uh, we don't think highly of those people. Paul doesn't. Think of the way that he asks the question, or do you despise the riches of his kindness? 
you show disdain for people who act kind to you and in turn you act with wickedness. And of course this kindness, as I said before, being the, the active ingredient in love, kindness is shown through deeds, demonstrate, which demonstrate love for others. Deeds. Pray. Do you, do you so, so you can, very simply, do you pray for the people in your church? And I don't, I, I do not, um, you know, I'm not telling you exactly how to pray, but I don't mean, God bless all those people in the church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. But by name, and it's very easy to, you know, when, when you're in a group with people or maybe with an individual and they, they're, they're sharing with you some of their griefs, some of their burdens, or you know corporately some of the needs and some of the burdens of the church, and you say things like, I'll pray for you, which is like, you know, a lie, because you're, you're going to forget there's no intention of writing it down. And then when you come to the Lord to pray, you ask. You ask for those people. And you could do this in a number of ways. You just break up the church alphabetically by last name. And I'm going to pray for my A's this week and B's and C's and D's. And, and you just break up the church that way. And you pray for specific people. And you might not know everybody's business, right? And you might not know all of the details of their sufferings. But there are texts that you can pray. You can pray for people by name. That shows a level of love and kindness towards them. That you are willing to pray for them. Do you encourage them with your words? Do you have conversations with them? Look them in the eyes. Shake their hands. Ask them how they're doing. Are you, do you encourage them? Do you instruct them? In the truth. Now that takes a level of intimacy with a person. You, there should be intimacy in the church, friendships and relationships. And there should be a willingness to have and an openness to have difficult conversations with people in the church. You're, if you get to, when, if and when you get to know people in the church and you spend time around them and you're around their family, it's not wrong for you to ask or maybe say things like, I saw the way that you interacted with your kids the other day, and I didn't think that was really nice, the way that you talked to them. That's not being intrusive. Or I saw the, you know, your, your husband asked you to do something, and boy, the way you looked at him, I thought you were going to rip his head off. That's not, you're not being intrusive. That is... Kindness. You're not so. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but if your kids like eating desserts, like some of mine do, and and you want to be kind to your kids because you love them, do you just let them eat donuts all day long? Is that is that kind, or do you love them enough to hurt their feelings and say, "No, eat this broccoli." That's that's love. And you see, when that doesn't happen in a church, the same way as if it doesn't happen in a home, homes fall apart and churches fall apart because of lack of kindness. We're so concerned with ourselves and in not hurting people's feelings 
and being kind that we're not kind. We're selfish. Do you physically help others to your own inconvenience? Not only when it's convenient, but to your own inconvenience. Do you help other people? One author put it this way. He says, kindness recognizes that everyone carries a heavy load. And then what does a Christian do? We bear one another's burdens. As Christ did. Christ bore our burden upon the cross. He bore the weight of our sin. The punishment we deserve. He did that for us. Therefore, as his people, we ought to be willing to bear one another's burdens. And, um, I don't know, uh, some of you may have exercised with weights before. You know, bearing burdens isn't easy. Squatting, you know, two, three hundred pounds is pretty hard. And sometimes when you, when you shoulder somebody's burden and you begin to feel the weight of how difficult it is to help them, you don't want to. It's hard. But this is what we're called to do. And that is what makes a church vibrant. That, that is when a church becomes sweet. When, when, when visitors come and they step into that kind of atmosphere, they can feel the, that sweetness. They can taste it. It's, it's kind of, uh, and I've used this one also. You know, everybody's house has a particular smell. I'm not talking about bad odor. I'm just saying that people's houses smell like the people, right? And you, if you, and you may have good memories of this, you, the way your grandmother's house smelled or the home that you grew up in. And maybe, uh, maybe your grandmother or your parents are still alive and when you visit their home, there's that smell and it reminds you of just splendid memories. Well, a church that takes these the love seriously and there's long-suffering and then there's active kindness. It has that atmosphere where people want to be there. They enjoy the fellowship of the saints. They want to be with God's people. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to this. If you have not been kind, repent of it. There is, uh, who, who was it? Anthony Burgess, or who, who, who was a pastor that we were talking about yesterday with the stutter? Remember? Sibs, right? I think he says, there is more, this is not verbatim, but there is more grace and mercy in Jesus than anywhere else. So you can go to Christ even now and repent of your sins, confess it to him, repent of it, and endeavor after new obedience, and he will give you the grace that is necessary for you to be kind to Christian people. So brothers and sisters, let us pray and then we will take the cup. Lord Jesus, you died for us so that we might live for you. So as we take the supper, Lord, this is not just a mere ritual, but it is a way of 
remembering your death and of the benefits that we receive from it, the fruit of the Spirit. And as we consider love, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be honest and to repent of our sins and that we would, Lord, respond in obedience to your commands. Help us, Lord, to love one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please take the cup with me. Rick will come around and pick up the cups from you. Let's uh, stand and sing.
Now as we worship the Lord through giving, we'll look at Genesis chapter 35, verses 6 through 15. And this is the second half of what we've been looking at in Genesis chapter 28. This is really the conclusion. If you remember there, as Jacob is leaving the land, uh, because his brother's going to come and kill him because he took his brother's birthright, he, uh, God appears to him and gives him the Abrahamic covenant. And he sets up a stone there and he pours oil upon this stone and he says to God, Lord, if you bring me back and you give me these precious promises, I will in turn give you a tenth of all that belongs to me. And now he's returning to the land. God has returned or fulfilled that promise and caused him to return to the land. So this is where we pick up in Genesis. Genesis chapter 35, beginning at verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Of course, here, here's one of the great connections in the Bible. This is the command that was given to Adam in the garden. Be fruitful multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. That, that is what God intended for Adam in the garden. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Amen. Now, if you remember, when Jacob left the land, he had nothing with him. All he had was his staff and his sandals and a little bit of oil to eat on his way. And that's it. But now he has a multitude of people, a family, great wealth he brings with him. Remember, as he is going to meet Esau, he sets up uh, his family in two sets and they're presenting gifts to Esau, all of these great things. So when he left, what did he do? He just set up a stone because that's all he had. And it was a stone. That was a stone where he laid his head. It was the only thing that gave him comfort sleeping in that cold desert. And what he does is he dedicated that to God. He poured some oil on it as a remembrance. 
Now that God has increased him in wealth, what does he do? He creates an altar, a place of worship for God, a monument that everyone could see. And what does he do? He pours a drink offering, more than likely wine. And uh, wine is used throughout the Bible in offerings as an expression of God's riches towards the person, his abundance, his goodness. So uh, God's abundance towards the person, but then the person's joy and satisfaction in enjoying what God gives them. And they offer that back to God as a drink offering. And then almost by way of reminding himself from where God had brought him, what does he do? He takes some oil like he did the first time and he pours oil upon this altar. And in the same way, our offerings, when we give to the Lord, the, the amount that we give is really not the issue with God. Now, granted, there are many people who should give more than they are currently giving. I'm not going to argue with that. But you see, with God, the, the amount isn't the issue. It's the heart from which it comes. And here, what Jacob gives flows out of the abundance of goodness that God has shown to him. And as we give to the Lord, that is the way that we should give. It should be out of gratitude for his goodness towards us. So in light of this, let us give to the Lord. Pray with me, and then Rick will come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us, and we ask you that you would please help us, Lord. Help us as a people to be joyful, to be grateful for what you've given us, and to give in light of that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, During this time, we usually take a, a bit of a break if you need to use the restroom.
All right, let's pray. Almighty God, we're grateful to you for this day. Set aside once a week, Lord, to come together as your people, Lord, and uh, worship you, hear your word preached. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, and me as well, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth about to be preached. pray that you give Pastor Rick the strength to preach your word. Use him, use your spirit to deliver your message in a way that we could understand it, and it would bring conviction to our hearts. We thank you so much, Lord, for this day, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would protect them as this week uh, starts here and that you would help them uh, throughout the week and strengthen them and guide them in all they do. Lord, we love you, we love this place, and we love your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And I will be reading verses 52 through 56. John chapter 8, verses 52 through 56. Hear the word of God. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say he is our God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham Rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Amen. This entire uh, discourse, this uh, John chapter 8 really, uh, begins with Jesus' statement. Back in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And it is because of that statement that the Pharisees and the Jews who are there take a great offense at what Jesus is saying. And now, in this particular interaction, if you remember, these are they who said that they believed in him. Verse 30, he spoke to these many words, he spoke these many words, excuse me, and many believed in his name. And then to those who believe, Jesus speaks to them, and now they are greatly offended at Jesus. And it is not, of course, because Jesus intends to be offensive, but because the word of God is intended to shed light into darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Therefore, those who live in the darkness, they flee from the light. Jesus here now presses the issue 
And remember last week, what I, no, the week before that, last week was Sunday, we spoke about the resurrection. But the resurrection, that text is going to play a vital part in our conversation today, our text from Hebrews 11. But the week before that, when we looked at this chapter, we focused uh, at least upon this particular truth, where Jesus says to them, Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. It's in the midst of this hostility that Jesus is facing from the religious leaders and from the Jews that are there that he offers them the gospel anyways. He continues to offer them the gospel. And as he offers them the gospel, listen to this response. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. They doubled down on their offense. Now we know that you have a demon. Why, why is that? Why are they making this conclusion? Abraham is dead. And the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? So, note first. They do not understand Jesus' words. This, of course, comes from their rebuttal. They heard the word of God, and they heard that those who heard the word of God, or hear the word of God, and receive it will not die. Therefore, they automatically think, well, Abraham isn't here. And the prophets who heard the word, preached the word, received the promises. They're not here with us. But they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They were dead. But they were alive. These who were hearing Jesus, they were alive. But they're really dead. And that's why they do not understand his word. He's not talking about physical death. When he says that you will never see death, they, they, the way that they respond, they say, tastes death. I don't think there's a big difference there. But they say, when Jesus said that they will never see death, this is a really emphatic statement. He is really saying, you will never die. They're never going to sample death, not even in, in, a, in, a, in a small bit. And, but they didn't understand he was talking about spiritual death. For the believer, this is a reality that we should rejoice in and live in light of. We will never die. Our body will. Our body is failing and decaying. I, I don't feel as good as I did when I was 18. And I'm certain when I'm 50, I won't feel as good as I do now. And can I get an amen from anyone? <laughs> And although physically we experience death, spiritually we will never experience death. The believer will never experience death. As I was doing my Bible reading uh, this week, I uh, came across this text that is very fitting in this context. Listen, listen to this from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 14. 
and verse 14. And here, um, uh, in this chapter, you have this woman who's basically, she's, she's put up to this by a, Joab to convince David into receiving Absalom again into his courts. And she says this, 14, 14. She says this, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet, God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. And when I I read that passage, I thought to myself, oh man, this woman spoke better than she knew. Because for the believer, we understand that, that God has done that. Look, we, we deserve death. Oh, right? Ephesians chapter 2, this is a verse that, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, this is a section of the Bible that every Christian should have memorized, and even if you're not a Christian, you should be intimately familiar with it, because Paul says there that we were once children of wrath. We were destined for it. For wrath, for the condemnation of God because of our sins. And we lived under the sway and power of the devil. He's, he's not mythical like a unicorn or Godzilla. The devil is a real being. And he holds sway over man. And we lived at one time under his dominion and his power. Which means we were subject to eternal death. Not only the death of the body, but the death of our very souls. But God has devised a way. And this is what fallen man cannot understand. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins, who the God, who the God of this world blinds so that, they don't, so that they do not see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus. That God has devised a way so that we might never be banished or expelled from his presence. The way that Adam was expelled from the presence of God in the garden. God has made a way in Christ for us never to be expelled from his presence. As uh, Eric was talking about in his Sunday school class, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you now, even to the end of the age. He is with us now, and he will be with us forever. And as Jesus is declaring these truths... To these unbelievers, their heart recoils. And is is your heart recoiling now? It shouldn't. It should give you great joy. Because if if you think, well, this is not the end. Uh, You know, for the kids in here. uh, One day, you know, many, many moons ago, I was a kid. And I did enjoy playing video games. And uh, I love cheat codes. <laughs> Maybe you don't like cheat codes. I love cheat codes. And in particular, I love the infinite lives cheat code. And when you have the infinite lives cheat code, you don't die. So what, are you, what do you tend to do? You explore and search and find all of the goodies the games has to, has to offer with no fear of death. 
the Christian more than any other person can live in this world that way. We can live with, with no fear. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, so therefore go parasailing or something like that. And that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about exploits for God. Be, being willing to give of yourself for his people and for those who do not know him. Because when we've been there a thousand years, a thousand, ten thousand 10,000 times 10,000 years in his presence, in the new heavens and in the new earth, we'll have people, I I don't know if this is going to be like this, but I'm going to venture to say, it will be like this. Hey, you're such and such. Yeah, that's me. Uh, You know, 25 years ago, you helped plant a church in Canada. And my son was converted in that church. And he preached the gospel to me. And that's why I'm here. And I've been looking for you for like 10,000 years to tell you. So th- this should be a great encouragement. As adults in particular, we should live in light of this reality. I mean, we go, there are many difficulties that we have in this world, right? You know, we have concerns for ourselves, for our spouses, for, those, uh, for our family members, those who are close to us, for our children, for people we love. And valid concerns, but we can bring all of those to God. And not only that, then we can live in this world in a way that, that, that puts on display that what we have in our hearts is eternity. If you are not a Christian, uh, you don't understand these words. But if you consider, but consider the forgiveness that Jesus offers. If Jesus, Jesus is guaranteeing in John chapter 8 that you will never die, that means that every sin is forgiven. Hey, you think of the peace that you can live with knowing that you are reconciled to God. That there is nothing, nothing that can separate you from his love in Christ Jesus. And then think of the grace and the power that will be at work in you in this world. And uh, if if you think to yourself, well, you know, I don't see these things in the Bible and I can't quite understand them. In Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist prays, and he's a believer, but this is a fitting prayer for the children in here who may not understand these things or for those who are adults and don't understand them. Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of the book of your law. And that should be the way that you should pray. God, open my eyes. I don't see it. When I, when I read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't see what you say I should see in this book. Open my eyes and help me to see it. And you can pray that for other people. My husband doesn't see it. My wife doesn't see it. My son doesn't see it. My daughter doesn't see it. My neighbors don't see it. My grandparents don't see it. Uh, people don't see it. And I want them to see it. God, open their eyes so that they might see it. 
they're getting. They, they, they are not understanding what Jesus is saying, but they're sort of getting what Jesus is saying. Because their comment to him exposes this. Listen, listen to what they say after this. They say, this is in verse 53, John 8, 53. They say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is very similar to the, to the comment of the woman of Samaria. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who drank from this well? Literal. She's, she is understanding when Jesus offers her water, this water that will uh, well up in her and be a spring of eternal life. And she takes him literally. There's going to be some physical water that I can drink, and it's going to, I never have to come back to this well again. My thirst will be satisfied forever. And in the same way, these are misunderstanding because they think not dying means physically in this world. And who do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than Abraham? Jesus' short answer, of course, could have been, yeah, I am. In Isaiah, when God promised that Christ would come, he says that a child would be born and a son would be given and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will bear the government of the entire universe. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is great and greatly to be praised. Um, that really ought to be a disposition that sets you apart from other people. That you rejoice in Christ. We have nothing to offer God in, in and of ourselves. But God offers us everything in the person of his son. And he offers us his son and then he says to us, make much of him. And we ought to in all of our lives. A second thing, so they didn't quite, of course, they didn't know who Jesus was. And they didn't know how to understand his words. But they didn't understand the Bible. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, he says to them, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, which the Pharisees believed, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am, the, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In turn, in essence, he's saying to the Pharisees, they're not dead. When God becomes your God, there is no more death for you. Death is a doorway into the presence of God, physical death, because there is no spiritual death. And so Jesus says, verse 54, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. And think, think of this. Oh, uh, Jesus came into the world to be the Savior of sinners. 
I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Jesus says. And in his first coming, he came as a suffering servant. Um, does he enter, you know, Jesus being God, he could have entered Jerusalem on a stegosaurus, right? <laughs> what does he do? He, he enters on a, a donkey, lowly. Who are those who are there praising him primarily? It's the kids, right? He, he came into this world a lowly savior. He was intended to suffer. As I've said before, the, a description of the life of Christ, biblically even, Peter uses this language, and as I referred to last week in 1 Peter chapter 1, sufferings. When Christ entered this world, his life was a life of sufferings, then glory after his resurrection. So he doesn't come to honor himself. That's not what he came for. When he does miracles throughout the Gospels, what does he do? Does he say to the people, go tell everybody that I did this for you, that I healed you, that I... No, he keeps it. We'll see this in chapter 9 with the man born blind. Jesus, in essence, tells him to keep it, you know, uh, to use, uh, you know, uh, language that's for, for my age. You know, he says, keep it on the DL. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's like right in the middle of our demographics. The kids definitely don't get it. The older folks don't get it. The 30-somethings get that. <laughs> 40s, 30s and 40s. You, you understand what I'm saying, <laughs> uh, right? Keep it secret. Keep it safe. <laughs> All of my Lord of the Rings people understand that. That, that, that. That's what Jesus was saying to them, right? Because he didn't come. That's not what he came for. He, he, he came into this world to suffer. Yet that is the way that God was honoring him, his son by giving him this special place of privilege as the deliverer of his people. And Jesus understood this. Jesus understood that by means of his suffering, his father would be glorified and, and all of his people would be saved. Therefore, in the eyes of the world, it's foolishness, right? The, the cross is folly to the world. But for the believer, it is a source of great joy and happiness. We see the glory of God in the person of his son, in the humility of his son. And of course, when Jesus says, my father who glorifies me, he, he can, one, one author put it this way, he can be referring to two things as we think about this. First, of course, as applied to Christ as the son of God, the father glorifies him with divine glory with this uh, generating him from eternity as equal to himself. Eternal generation, where there is no beginning to it and no end. As we read, Jesus reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. And there are particular places in the Gospels where the disciples see it, right? So Nathaniel, I saw you praying. 
my Lord and my God. Jesus, um, Peter on the boat, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. On the Mount of Transfiguration, where his glory shines through, Paul, when he sees him on the road to Damascus, or after his resurrection, when John sees him as the glorified Son of Man. But as a man, he had the glory of God through an overflowing into him of divinity. An overflowing of unique grace and glory. You, you think of the woman, I, yeah, I just love the woman of Samaria in John, John 4, because when he's talking with her, I don't know, the more I read the Gospel of John, I think she understands that he is the Messiah before he tells her. And she is somewhat playing coy, and she says this to him. And I just love this. John 4.25. After he exposes her sin, he speaks to her about worship. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. When she runs to the crowds to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, what does she say? Come meet a man who told me all things. She knew who he was. His, in, in the conversation he was having with her, the glory of God, it, it, it poured out in his words. And she came to see this. Jesus did not honor himself. This was an office that God bestowed upon him. He was, of course, worthy to receive it. But just as Aaron didn't bestow the office of high priest upon himself, this office of lowly, suffering servant, the Father gave it to the Son. He says to him, you are my Son, and today I have begotten you. Jesus did not bestow this glory upon himself, but he took the glory that the Father gave to him. They did not know who Jesus was. Therefore, they could not see him. And Jesus continues, and he says to them in John 8, It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. And of course here, since they do not know Jesus, God is not their God. That's the point he's making. You can't see who I am because God is not your father. You are of your father, the devil. He had just uh, finished saying that to them. It is the father's distinct prerogative to reveal to men and women who the son is. And then the son, in turn, does the same. John Calvin writes this. He says, Christ testifies that the necessity of his office constrains him to speak. He has to say what he says because of the office he was given, the, the work he had to accomplish, because silence would be tr a treacherous denial of the truth. And as Christian people, we have to understand that. If we know the truth, we must communicate that truth to others. And it would be treachery for us not to. When, when you know that those who love you 
are living, and I'm not talking about like preparing sermons, you know, so that when a family member or your friend comes over that you know is not, not right with God, you're preaching sermons all the time. No. You speak the truth in love. You do it in wisdom, right? We're harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. But we have this responsibility. It would be treacherous to, for us to know that one of our family members is, is you know, a Roman Catholic or trapped in Islam or, or an atheist, and we never say anything. Or they, or they profess to be a Christian, and they don't at all live like one. They don't live like one. And we just don't say anything. We don't say nothing. We, we say nothing. We keep our mouths shut. It's not self-righteous to do it. It's treacherous not to. Calvin continues. He says, this is a remarkable statement that God reveals himself to us for this purpose. That we may confess before men the faith which we have in our hearts when it is needful. I'm not talking about being, you know, that overbearing person at work who, um, I've been this person, right? You don't really pray, you preach sermons, so you close your eyes, Lord, I would just pray for my brother, what an awful person he is, and I, right? I'm not talking about being that way. I'm talking about speaking the truth in love. And this is what Jesus did. He tells them, he is not your God. Yet, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. It's not, so it's not arrogant when we do it. It's not, it's not prideful for, for us to say to men, you are, you are, you are heading down the path of destruction. And if you do not turn to Christ and plead with God to save your soul, you will go to hell. That, that, that's not arrogance. That really is the height of love. That is the height of love. But I do know him and keep his word. And then verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. You know, they're, they short-circuited. They're, they're <laughs> what is he talking about? Their response is clear, right? You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Augustine said this, Abraham's seed, Abraham's creator, bears a great testimony to Abraham. We saw this in Hebrews 11, right? Uh, our text from last week, Hebrews 11, 37, I believe it was, if I'm remembering correctly, or 18, 17 and 18, I think. A week is such a long time ago. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. 
concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham looked to the future and knew that God, there would be a time when God would raise the dead. I'm not going to preach the sermon from last Sunday. Go hear the sermon. It's on the internet somewhere. But Abraham sees, he looks to the future, and when he received the promise, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, God said to him, and your seed, not referring to many, but referring to Christ. Abraham had his hope set on the day when God would send a seed who would be the deliverer of the world. So that Paul can say, of course, that God preached the gospel to Abraham. What was the gospel? That a seed would come, a deliverer would come from his loins to deliver the world from the power and tyranny of sin. And he believed it. Augustine continues, he says, Believing, at all events, he rejoiced in hope to see with understanding. Right? So this is part of the Christian faith. We, we believe and we live by faith, not by sight. Not blind faith, of course, because there's, uh, the, the, the Bible reveals to us the promises of God. And God backs those promises, of course, with deeds, mighty deeds powerful works. And he believed in all of these events and that all of these things were to happen and come true. Why? Because God promised. He saw. And what more could the Lord Jesus Christ say? Or what more ought he have said? And he saw. And he was glad. Who can unfold this joy, my brethren? If those rejoiced whose bodily eyes were opened by the Lord, what joy was his who saw with the eye of his soul the light ineffable, the abiding word, the brilliance that dazzles the minds of the pious, the unfailing wisdom, God abiding with the Father, and at the same time to come in the flesh and yet not withdraw from the bosom of the Father. And all this did Abraham see. You see, the man in John chapter 9, which we'll see in, I don't know when, but we're working our way there. He, re- he was filled with joy because he could physically see how much more those Jews who were there, who knew to some extent the Old Testament, what joy they should have had when they knew that this is the seed of Abraham. You see, those whose spiritual eyes have been opened to see this truth, they rejoice greatly in Christ. They don't ask foolish questions like, who does this man think he is? They know. How is it that he can command? Jesus commands our desires, our affections, our thoughts, our deeds. He commands us to worship him, to sing praise to him, to rejoice in sorrows. Who, who, who does he think he is? He is our God. He's our Savior. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And you should be like Abraham. You should rejoice in Christ. You should take great delight and joy in knowing that he came into this world to die for sinners. That he is 
the only Savior. Abraham placed his entire hope upon the coming of the seed. The day of the incarnation was clear in his eyes. And for us, it's clearly written in the word. And then the day of his second coming is clearly explained in the scriptures also. And these ought to be two great sources of joy and happiness and confirmation in the truthfulness of God. So brothers and sisters, let us give great praise to God. Let us be like Abraham and rejoice in Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you and your grace I have sent Christ into the world. We ask you that you would help us to run this race, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he is now seated at your right hand. Help us, Lord, to live in light of these truths, and may they fill us with great joy and gladness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing the doxology with me.